0: Welcome to the Regional Roundup, a production of Rocky Mountain Community Radio, a coalition of public and community radio stations in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah and New Mexico, including this one. I'm Maeve Conran, the Coalition's Managing Editor, and today we'll hear about a proposed new school curriculum in Garfield County, Colorado.
1: They talk a lot about patriotism and liberty and how these should be kind of the cornerstones of American social studies education. Book
0: banning
2: in libraries. And so the focus is now shifting to an overtly political, overtly power driven drive to have control over what other people can read.
0: And book binding in Telluride.
2: People make paper and people create leather for the binding of books
0: or people create decorative papers. From Rocky Mountain Community Radio, it's the Regional Roundup. Garfield RE2 School District in Western Colorado is holding a series of public meetings to get feedback from families on options for a new social studies curriculum. In addition to two sets of state-approved standards, it's considering the conservative and controversial American Birthright Social Studies Curriculum. Aspen Public Radio's Carolyn Yanis has been reporting on the issue and I caught up with her to find out more. Carolyn, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us today.
1: Of course. Happy to be here.
0: Well, as we heard in the introduction, the Garfield RE2 School District has been holding a series of public meetings to gauge feedback from the community, specifically from families around some new social studies curriculum that will be put in place in the 2024-25 school year. Two sets of state approved standards are under consideration, but in addition to that, a third standard is also being considered and that has been developed by a conservative group, the Civics Alliance. Now, you yourself attended a recent public meeting about this in Silt, in Colorado. Tell us, first of all, what is being proposed in terms of the social studies curriculum?
1: Yeah, so families basically, like you said, they have these three options, um, a set of standards that was adopted by the state in 2022. Um, and a revised version of those standards, plus the American Birthright curriculum, and I think we should note that the state adopted standards were adopted in response to a series of laws that the Colorado legislature passed, having to do with social studies education. They're requiring, you know, kids get lessons in financial literacy and civics, and also to um, they need to learn about the contributions of minority groups um, in our nation's history. Whether that's Black people, um, the Latino community, LGBTQ people. Um, So these revised standards are kind of reflecting those new laws and requirements for civics in Colorado. Um, But the American birthright standards, like you said, developed by this conservative group, the Civics Alliance, they have kind of written this set of standards that they say are based in Western civilization. And they focus quite a bit on Christianity and how Christianity played a role in the formation of Western civilization. They talk a lot about patriotism and liberty and how these should be kind of the cornerstones of American social studies education. But it's also important to note that, you know, they want to promote these values, but they are also kind of explicitly against certain aspects of teaching social studies. Um, They are against so-called anti-racism, civic engagement, critical race theory, current events learning, media literacy, project-based learning, and social-emotional learning, among many other things, as well as diversity, equity, and inclusion, or DEI. But I think it's fair to say that this is maybe reactionary to certain events that have happened, you know, we saw in 2020 with the murder of George Floyd by Minneapolis police, um, kind of a sort of racial reckoning, and that translated to schools as well. How do we teach about race in American history? Because that is, that's a really tough topic. Um, and I think that this curriculum can be seen as sort of reacting to that, swinging in the other, other direction, saying, well, America, like, yeah, we have this ugly history with race, but this is still a nation to be proud of. Um, and they directly oppose some of those teaching methods. Although I, I do have to say there is not really evidence that critical race theory has been taught at an elementary, middle or high school level. It's primarily used in law curriculum. Well, it's also worth noting that
0: this particular social studies curriculum, the American Birthright one, has been rejected by Colorado's State Board of Education, but also by the National Council for Social Studies. They say it's using outdated language, it's got a clear political motive and is, is quite critical of us. So how did this get in front of the Garfield RE2 school district then in the first place? Where is the push coming from at a local level to adopt this?
1: Yeah, so this was originally brought by a school board member, Tony May. Um, And I will say this curriculum has only been adopted by one other district in the country right now, um, and that is Woodland Park in Colorado. That's kind of closer to the Colorado Springs area, but it is here in Colorado. But yeah, this is something that has not really gotten a whole ton of attention nationally, But this is definitely a set of curriculum standards that conservative groups around the country have been discussing since they were originally published. So if you run in those circles, this is something that you would have heard about, would have been exposed to. It's currently being considered as well by the Ohio State Legislature. There are groups everywhere who are kind of pushing for it to be considered. But this is really the only district that I've seen other than Woodland Park that's kind of really taking it seriously as a legitimate option for its social studies standards.
0: So the school district, Garfield RE2 School District, has held a series of public meetings. Four in all will be held. You attended the first one and it was in Silt. Who was there? What was discussed? And what did you hear?
1: Yeah. So as you can imagine, it was a lot of families who were worried about, you know, what their kids were learning in school. They want to be involved in their child schooling. And it was a really emotional meeting emotions were definitely running high and as a result people didn't always stay on topic talking about curriculum standards and social studies and things like that there were some really big ideas being discussed what role does a school play in a child's overall education not necessarily just academics but are there certain topics that parents should be teaching at home what does it really mean to be an American? And what role does a school play in in forming your child's national identity? So I mentioned earlier that it was now a requirement for schools in Colorado in their social studies curriculum to teach about what minority groups have contributed throughout history, because that has been an, an area that has been underrepresented in the past. And I will say the state standards do specify when it comes to the LGBTQ community and their contributions to our state and our country's history. This is not a mandate for them to teach complex human sexuality or sex ed. We're asking you to talk about the LGBTQ community's history and that community's contributions. But there was some conflation of that thought. They were really concerned about. Oh well what sex ed is RE2 teaching in schools? And also too another big topic that came up was should schools teach values and morality? One parent, Isaac Robinson, was really concerned about this values and morality portion that he was kind of worried was being taught as part of social studies. There are things
3: that are being taught that are I would say against a Judeo-Christian.
2: Foundation morally. There are things taught as fact that are still theory.
1: Um another member of the community, Debbie Grizzle, she lives in Rifle. She has three grandkids, one of whom has already gone through RE2 schools, two are currently in schools. In response to kind of all the sex ed talk, she explicitly said, my kids have never come home talking about sex. I don't really know what you guys are talking about. And she also pointed out that it's not really fair for people to impose their specific political or religious beliefs on others. It's fine
3: you believe what you wanna believe, but you've gotta remember that your kids are mixing with all these different kids, and it's not fair for your kids to be cruel, but they're learning what you teach them.
1: And so, you know, I would say that there was a lot of people who didn't really have specific thoughts about specific curricula, but they just kind of wanted to voice their opinions about what their kids should be learning. It's tough to get a handle on how many people specifically supported American Birthright versus the adopted standards, but I would say that broadly, there was a lot of people there who were in favor of kind of some of the values that American birthright pushes. Patriotism, for example, was a topic that came up over and over. Even if they weren't reading the specific curriculum, I think there was a fair amount of people there who were definitely in favour of some of the ideas espoused by the standards.
0: Well, let's put this into a broader context. I think it is worth uh, letting listeners know who might not be familiar. This is very firmly in Representative Lauren Boebert's district. And so it's no surprise, really, that... There are people in that area who are talking about patriotism and Christian values, very much talking points that Representative Bobert herself uses very often. So give us a little bit of context about the school district and maybe what's happening in libraries locally.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that this district is definitely a really good representation of kind of a lot of cultural anxieties coming to a head that we've seen in other places around the country. Like you said, this is in Lauren Boebert's district. So, you know, conservative thought and patriotism are definitely values that are uh, alive and well in that district. and. Garfield County libraries also um, have had their share of complaints from patrons asking for books to be removed from shelves or recategorized from being for kids or young adults to being adult books. And if you talk to Garfield County Library's executive director, Jamie LaRue, he'll tell you a lot of these challenges are for books that deal with difficult topics about race, for example, or they deal with subject matter relating to people who are part of the LGBTQ community or they have to do a lot of times with uh, Japanese manga comics. That's another topic that kind of comes up with these challenges. So this is definitely a district where kind of these cultural ideas and these kind of conflicts are coming to a head. I will say, though, this is also a district that shares a lot of the struggles that people around Colorado deal with when it comes to affordability and finding housing. This is a a four-day-a-week district, so they don't have that fifth day of school, which is important to think about. I will also say, too, according to the district itself, 44% of its students are Latino. So this is a district that's seen a lot of demographic change. It's gotten a lot more diverse. And so you kind of have that tension of, you know, people maybe not wanting to draw attention to some issues that have to do with race and topics of diversity. Like, this is a curriculum that is explicitly anti-DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. But at the same time, this is a district that is only getting more diverse. I should also note, too, that Um, Several seats on the RE2 Board of Education are up for re-election this November, so this could be an issue that plays a key role in that school board election. These district members could feel like they maybe have kind of a ticking clock to implement these standards. Maybe they're worried that the next board that's elected won't agree with them. So that's also something to keep in mind for the timeline of adopting these new standards. Well, Carolyn
0: Yannis with Aspen Public Radio has been reporting on this and will continue to do so. Caroline, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us. Thanks, Maeve. Always a pleasure. Well, as we heard there, the same community, Garfield County, is also grappling with efforts to restrict access to or remove certain books from public libraries. A Rifle resident has brought a petition to the Garfield County Public Library District asking it to restrict access to books in the adult section. The two Japanese manga series depict sexual scenes and one of them features LGBTQ characters. At a library district meeting on September 7th, Trisha Grady said that the books should be kept under lock and key or in a separate room marked adults only.
3: Furthermore, these materials need to be checked out ...by a library employee who has the responsibility to require an ID to prove the person is 18 years or older.
0: Garfield County Library's Executive Director Jamie LaRue said at the meeting that the books in question were not shelved in the children's area... ...and he said that it is her and others' rights to not like what is in the library and to express their concerns. But certain behaviour crosses a line.
2: A patron came into the Sill Library, berated one of my staff, accosted a patron in a Pride uh t-shirt, then took some of these books (laughs) being challenged, bent them open to the pictures, and carefully placed them around the library, including the children's area.
0: O'Grady stood up at the meeting and took credit for that incident. The Board of Trustees capped public comment at 30 minutes, but LaRue proposed a separate public forum at a later date so that community members could engage in a more robust discussion. Well, Garfield County Library Executive Director, James LaRue, is no stranger to attempts to remove books from libraries. In fact, he's just written a new book on the issue. On censorship, a public librarian examines cancel culture in the US. He spoke with KGNU's Kira Zizzo.
2: I began as a public library director in uh, Douglas County, Colorado. And in the time that I was there from 1990 through 2014, I responded to received and responded to over 250 challenges. And those challenges mean somebody officially requests either that you eliminate the uh, resource, you know, book, magazine, um, program, exhibit, whatever, or you restrict access to it. And 250 challenges is more than almost any library I had ever spoken to. And I thought, well, how interesting, what's, what's all that about? And finally got to the point where I realized that first I thought it was a left against right or religious against secular, but eventually I think it was more generational. It was about kind of a growing parental protectiveness where they just didn't want their children to be exposed to the wolves in the woods. And then uh, after I left uh, Douglas County, I went to work for the American Library Association and I was the director of the Office for Intellectual Freedom. And this is uh, an agency where if someone tries to censor library materials, they're supposed to call the Office for Intellectual Freedom. And we tried to help them respond or get more reviews or figure out the best way to talk about this with their community. And while I was there, I dealt with another close to a thousand attempts to restrict materials across America. And then I uh, uh, eventually wound up relocating here to the Western slope in Colorado. I'm now a rural um, library administrator, which is fascinating. And now I'm kind of coming in to experience what many libraries across the United States are experiencing, which is what uh, we call a surge. And this is where all of a sudden a whole bunch of people show up at a public meeting. They follow a very similar pattern. They're not just complaining about a single book, they're complaining about lots of them. So it's 15 to 20 or in the case of Texas, it's 850 books all at once. And so this list of books sort of comes from unknown places, but almost always the challenges are directed against books by or about LGBTQ, or by or about people of color. And so even though the language tends to be, well, this is inappropriate for children, or this is all about sex, when you dig into it, it's not about sex, it's about anything that is not just white straight people. And so that's what the challenges are about. So um, as I began to notice that the number of these challenges were picking up, increasing all across the country and getting a little scary in that, In some places, uh, in Idaho and Oklahoma and Texas, the idea was that it's not just that the book itself is pornographic or wrong, but that if I object to it and the librarian doesn't immediately remove it from the collection, I can sue the librarian for $10,000. It becomes a felony on their record and they can't pay the fine with a GoFundMe. So it's like there's something worrisome about what's happening with these library challenges and I wanted to explore that.
1: Why is this movement picking up all of a sudden?
2: Well, and I, I think that there's something like four main reasons why people challenge things. The first one is, it's just an often childhood trauma. And in my book, I talk about this, like when I was a kid, I was traumatized by Brussels sprouts. I hate Brussels sprouts. Forced to eat them, didn't like the taste. And so I still have this kind of hatred of Brussels sprouts. And one of the, the things I talk about is like, I remember walking into a grocery store and seeing a big display in the frozen food aisle of Brussels sprouts. So I go up to a manager and I say, I'm offended by Brussels sprouts. Don't I have the right not to see Brussels sprouts when I walk into a grocery store? And the manager that I spoke to said something that I think really applies to libraries. He said, nobody comes to the grocery store because we don't have what you don't want. Some people like Brussels sprouts. And so I think that many people just complain about stuff because they had a bad experience with it. So it's just individual trauma. And then the second thing that happens, and this was like the first book I wrote about censorship for librarians, was that I noticed that the common denominator for many of the challenges in libraries was parents of children between the ages of four and six, or parents of children between the ages of 14 and 16. And I realized being a father myself is like, what happens from four to six is a life transition. It's the end of infancy and it's the beginning of childhood. And parents kind of panic. They freak out, oh, my God, I want to reestablish control over my child's environment because now they're being exposed to play dates and preschool and, you know, all these other kinds of daycare sort of settings where they're being exposed to things the parents aren't comfortable about. 14 to 16, same thing. Now it's the end of childhood and the beginning of adulthood. And in both of those cases, I think what happens is parents freak out. And they say, I want my baby back. I just don't want them to grow up. I wanna preserve that innocence as long as possible. Typically after that two year period in the transition, you realize you may have lots of things to worry about, but libraries probably aren't one of them. Libraries are pretty helpful places. Now, then I think like this new surge that's coming up is, there are two aspects of it. The first one is kind of a demographic panic. So just like parents freak out when they see these changes, Many people have looked around in the United States and they say, you know what, America is becoming less white. And many people feel like, you know, even if they don't think of themselves as overtly racist or bigoted, there's still this kind of sense of I have a privilege. And if other people are coming up, more brown people, more LGBTQ people, that somehow threatens my privilege. And I think there's like a demographic panic. I don't want things to change. And I'm very intrigued by the fact that um, as I take a look at the books that that have been challenged with me and the books that were challenged at the Office for Intellectual Freedom, it's like all of the challenges are focused on 3% of what we collect in libraries, that 3% are the new voices, previously marginalized voices in American society. And so people on the right will say, ooh, fend those off. You know, I don't want change. We like things the way they are. Just don't talk about those people. Just only talk about white, straight people. And then on the other hand, on the left side, I have people that say, you know what? On the contrary, absorb as many of these new voices as you possibly can. And while you're about it, let's go back and clean up all those people who were not as woke as we are. And so the, the job of the librarian is to say, we just hold up a mirror to the culture. This is what's going on in society. And if you don't like what you see in the mirror, you don't blame the mirror, right? You blame what you see in the mirror. And so libraries track social change. 97% of what we've got still looks backward. It's still that mirror. 3% is the new voices. And then I think finally, the fourth reason that many people challenge library materials, it's for power and for money. I mean, I really believe somebody stands up and they say this book beloved by Toni Morrison is about sex. Well, if you read the whole book, and many people who challenge materials don't, but if you read the whole thing, you realize it's far deeper, more complicated, more meaningful. That's an important discussion to have. So I don't think that people are really complaining about what they say they're complaining about. They protest it, they get, you know, clicks and likes, and they ask for money and they get it. And so the focus is now shifting to an overtly political, overtly power-driven drive to have control over what other people can read.
0: That was Garfield County Library Director James LaRue speaking with KGNU's Kira Zizzo about his new book On Censorship, a Public Librarian Examines Cancel Culture in the U.S. You can find the entire interview online at kgnu.org. And you can find Carolyn Yannis' reporting on what's happening now in Garfield County Libraries and in the school district at aspenpublicradio.org. You're listening to the Regional Roundup from Rocky Mountain Community Radio. Now from book banning to book binding. The tradition of handbook binding dates back thousands of years to when Romans first began replacing scrolls with folded pages bound beneath a cover. While much about bookmaking has changed, there's still a devoted community of craftspeople who study the art of handbinding. One of the few places to learn the craft, the American Academy of Bookbinding is located in Telluride, Colorado, and it's just celebrated its 30th anniversary. KOTO's Gavin McGough reports.
2: So what I'm doing is doing the tone ins which is the cutout, and it's actually a piece of paper that folds to the inside of the book. So when you open a hardcover book, you can sometimes see little bits of paper
3: Eli Ball uh, is closing cool. in on the final touches of a book he spent the last two weeks painstakingly constructing. Ball is a student at the American Academy of Bookbinding, and over the last couple of years, he's been coming from his home in St. Louis to learn the craft of bookbinding at the AAB studio here in Telluride. When I uh, tell my friends
2: about it, they're like, "You're like pilgrimaging to like a monastery to make books or something." And it kind of feels like that a little bit. You know, you're you're trekking over here, you're staying in a beautiful mountain-filled town, and um, you get to make books, and you get to do it for two weeks, really just focus on it. And, you know, it is a little bit like a meditation almost.
3: Further down the workbench, Bonnie Thompson Norman is also a bookbinding pilgrim. She hails from Seattle. Why come to Telluride to learn the craft? Norman says the school trains the best of the best.
0: The graduates of this program are producing books at the highest level of art. They come at it with a sense of design and a sense of accomplishment and people make paper
3: and people create leather for the binding of books or people create decorative papers in the binding that can be used in the binding of books. I mean, I
2: think all of those are really elevated crafts.
3: Peter Garrity, a longtime teacher at the AAB, puts it as such.
2: When you think about reading a book, you might think about curling up on the sofa with a cup of coffee. The books that people here produce, they demand a different approach, and anyone can see that when they see the book they realize this is not a cup of coffee book.
3: The school opened in 1993, and this fall it's celebrating a milestone anniversary. For a number of years, the bookbinding program was a part of the AHA school. Daniel Tucker, the AHA's founder, was friends with the internationally known binder, Tini Mira, who began traveling to Telluride to teach classes. Such was her legend in the bookbinding community, explained AAB's managing director Chip Schilling.
2: And so from the beginning, students started coming from around the country and around the world to study with her.
3: Don Gleister, at 78, has been binding for far longer than the AAB has been around. He directs the fine binding program at the school and spends some eight weeks each year in Telluride teaching courses. Recognizing their sacrifice and thinking of his students, Gleister says, I think they're kind of like searchers, you know, seekers. And uh, sometimes it just really clicks. And then they're like junkies and it's over. You know, they just don't go however far they have to go. And I mean, I, that was with me. I mean, I didn't have any money. You know, I was just as junkie like anybody else. As the AAB marks its 30th year, Schilling posits the mission and the ethos of this tiny school high in the mountains all relates back to that community of
2: junkies. If we, if AAB can be a resource for them to move forward in their careers and support them, that's what we need to be, um, It's just be you know, an advocate for all the binders in the world.
3: For KOTO, this is Gavin McGough.
0: And you can see pictures of the American Academy of Bookbinding at koto.org. You've been listening to The Regional Roundup, a production of Rocky Mountain Community Radio, a network of public and community radio stations, in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah, and New Mexico, including this one. Thanks to Carolyn Yanis of Aspen Public Radio, Kira Zizzo of KGMU, and Gavin McGough of KOTO for today's show. Our theme music is Take Me Somewhere by Joel Adam Russell. I'm Maeve Conran.
2: Thanks for listening.